for May 28th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 204. The notional Ryan Seacrest. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, the West Coast, the leading edge, the cultural vanguard of America, nay, the world. I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with Peter Fenzel and special guest, Richard Sandling. Rich, welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, we're very, we're very glad. To, we're very glad to have you. Your your uh, your enthusiasm is blasting us uh, with your your microphone. Um, question of the week: uh, Richard Sandling, uh, the creator uh, and star, and uh, you know all in general genius behind uh, several videos that you can see at richardsandling.com, including the uh, 2012 Comedy Award nominated Tom Selleck's mustache. Uh, which is brilliant, and you should go Google right now, pause, and come back to the, to the uh, podcast now if you haven't. Um, in honor of the virality of your videos, question of the week panel. What is your favorite virus? Uh, drink, <laughs> if you're playing the Overthinking a Podcast drinking game, because he's first in the alphabet. It's Peter Fenzel. No, I think you drink when I'm not first in the alphabet, right? now. you drink when you are first in the alphabet, and I think you drink when you're not first in the alphabet. I think you just drink. <laughs> It's like Alien versus Predator, except whoever wins, you win too. Yay! I should say that this is a very uh, this is a very odd thing. We're recording this podcast at a special time so that uh, so that we can coordinate with uh, you know three time zones scattered across the globe. And so in Los Angeles, it's like eleven in the morning. And usually, I have a uh, you know frosty mug of of you know something or other with me when I'm recording this podcast. And and I suppose I could do that at eleven in the morning, uh, but I would feel somehow. Bad about that. So, so if we all seem slightly more lucid than than usual, you know, if we seem slightly more on the ball, just a little quicker on the uptake, that must be why. Yeah, so a little bit sharper, but also like a little bit less crazy, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. All right. So for a lot of viruses, you want to go on like WebMD and you read about it and you get all stressed out and you worry and you think you might have it or what have you. Uh, but for the best viruses, there's really only one place to go, which is uh, projectumbrella.net. Uh, the Resident Evil Compendium, because I'm going to go with the T-Virus, also known as the Tyrant Virus, the, and I quote, highly adaptable bioweapons-grade pathogen and the main component uh, for the Umbrella Corporation in their biological weapons develop program. Uh, you guys, you play Resident Evil. Any of you guys play Resident Evil? Any of those Resident Evil games? Uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the sound. That's like the sound of our entire uh, audience speaking in one voice. Okay, Pete, no one likes your reference. So, like, I don't really play the Resident Evil games either. They're zombie games. The T virus is a virus that turns people into zombies, and it spawns countless sequels. Um, but one of the reasons why it's my favorite virus is that while I don't play those games myself, I've watched my friends play them a lot, and uh, and it's really nice to watch your friend battling a virus in a way that you can like clearly gauge their progress and like celebrate their success in like real time. Because like, I don't get to watch when like a friend of mine has the flu as he like his like you know uh, you know his, his white blood cells or I guess they don't really do all that much. I'm not sure exactly what mechanisms with a body are fighting the virus, uh, but as his body wages war against the virus. But when one of my buddies is playing Codename Veronica and is like busting out the double Uzis all over people's faces that are zombies but not people anymore, then I can cheer for them and like be share that victory. And I feel like uh, if the battle of human versus virus is something that we must do together then I want it to be visible and also um, voiced by, like, crazy, creepy monsters and other such uh, corporate bodies and, and crazy people. <laughs> uh, thank you, Pete. Yes, the T-Virus yep. from, yes. uh, from Resident Evil, which no one else watches. Apparently, uh, it's a video game. You don't want <laughs> fair enough. Or plays, yes. I, the, well, uh, just going to let it go. We're going to let it go. Kate, Nobody Kate cares. Beckinsale, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, it's Mila Jovovich. Mila Jovovich, right. I, I'm always getting those two confused. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, uh, for me, let me tell you, I, I think a lot of uh, great viruses have come and gone recently, and a lot of them are trying to take the the uh, 
the crown. But th- but really, there is there can only be one champion. Oft imitated, never duplicated. Uh, cause of the 1918 flu pandemic, uh, the Hizzle one to the Nizzle one, H1N1 influenza virus. Uh, responsible more recently for the outbreak of swine flu. But um, but you know, I'm going all the way back to 1918 when you know the population of uh, the world was you know largely uh, when it swept through and decimated large swaths of the population and made several of the act- actresses on Downton Abbey look uh, extremely consumptive and, and somehow all the more fetching and romantic uh, for being infected uh, infected with this before, spoiler alert, it uh, disposed of one uh, conveniently enough. You are an epidemiological hipster, Matt. You go all the way back to the old school. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's a, if only I had like a Lomo, you know, camera to Lomo Lomography, the uh, pictures of the, you know, sort of 19th century cons- or early 20th century consumptives. Uh, though consumption is tuberculosis, which is caused by bacteria and not a virus. So, uh, you know, I had that I had that that trouble as I was frantically Wikipediaing uh, path to um to use for this uh rich uh last pride of place is the last overthinker to speak uh favorite virus sir uh, i have to say uh only made one appearance uh, but i have to say the uh virus responsible for the andromeda strain Ooh, <laughs> nice nice excellent i don't That's know a- if they managed to work out exactly what the virus was before they destroyed it but that uh that virus so then that's the Michael Crichton book where there's like yes. there's asteroid matter from was it blown is like an asteroid hits the earth and particles flow up, fly up into space and it, it it mutates is that what happens to the Andromeda strain and then yeah, it like it's, it's, uh, it's it's based on the very interesting idea that uh, uh, aliens would in fact get smaller not bigger so if we got invaded like aliens invaded they'd probably be germs or like cellular organisms not creatures like us Right, 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 right. They, well, usually, a lot of the time, the aliens are smaller, like in, uh, like in um, Spaced Invaders, right? Where they were like oh. sunglasses. <laughs> Although that's another one. Uh, in, yeah, and, and that's the girl from uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's right. That's so, another Michael Crichton reference, right? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I was reading about Coco the Monkey earlier today, just for shits and giggles. Oh, crap, I cursed. <laughs> you get you get one before you lose your PG you lose your PG13 uh PG13 rating uh, rating. I uh, accidentally published an episode of these effing teenagers on uh on this podcast feed and that that we are foul-mouthed and uh spoilerific on that podcast and so I hope our I hope our listenership uh weren't scandalized. Um yeah the the Andromeda strain the book and the, and then also a, a film in uh in 1971 with um oh i'm looking through the uh i'm looking through the cast list uh and there's not anyone i <laughs> recognize all that starring much. nobody <laughs> no there there were many hard working actors actors who work actors who get hired and right. uh those are the kind of actors we like uh on our site but um yeah, uh, the Andromeda strain, and I think that I think that the the spoiler alert, the resolution at the end is that they don't defeat it, they don't cure it, they don't uh, crush it. It's um, it just of its own accord mutates into a non lethal uh, non lethal form. Is that your recollection? Recollection? Yes. Yeah, makes everyone's blood go weird, doesn't it? Like it solidifies the blood, if I remember rightly, or. Right. It looks looks like couscous when it comes out. Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're not uh, right. Yeah, it, it it would be better yet if it if it uh, took place in in space and these sort of micro particles of blood sort of flew through the air in a kind of cosmic sand painting of uh, you know lethal uh, virality. Um, yeah. Like in uh, Star Trek, Star Trek Six, right, where there's the Klingon blood kind that's of floating and all CGI glory. That. That's where mm, I'm yeah. thinking of that from. I had a distinct memory of uh, blood of you know solidified or congealed blood uh, floating around in space. Yeah, yeah, that, it, it looks solidified and congealed because the CGI isn't so good. I right. think it's mostly just supposed to be like spheroid and like wobbly and Klingonish, uh-huh. as like, like little <laughs> like like little pieces of mercury, but blood and floating in space. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so I, 
with um, I I know that now every listener of this podcast has paused, uh, googled Tom Selleck's mustache, and come back to because um, they do everything we say. We they, we ask them, which is why Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance had that wonderful like third weekend at the box office, yeah, right? When everybody was like, "Oh, Pete recommended I watch it. I should go and see it." Because after we yeah after we <laughs> devoted fifty five minutes to a you know. <laughs> Book-length exegesis to a kind of master's thesis on Ghost uh, Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance. The whole listenership uh, went out and saw it. So uh, we know that in in like fashion, you have also seen Tom Selleck's mustache um, by now. And uh, when you were nominated, when you were nominated for the award, Rich, t- uh, tell us about your experience a little bit and what what happened, and just take us through the uh, take us through the whole you know process. Yeah, well, it was it was a slightly strange because I didn't put it forward for nomination. Uh, I just got it like my my agent got an email from uh, the company, sort of like uh, MTV and Comedy Central, who were kind of the corporation that were behind it. Just said I've been nominated. Uh, you know, like you've been nominated, and it was really it was nice because um, it's very sort of you know a nice email, but it's just an email to me saying you've been nominated for an award. Uh-huh. Because I didn't submit it, you kind of have this thing again. Well, how have they seen it? Who's seen it? Like, and then you get all excited to think of all the famous people that might have seen your video and really liked it. Because uh, if you're a comedy nerd like me, you get all excited about that sort of thing. Of course. Uh, and obviously, it was it was audience vote, uh, which was interesting, but you know, a bit of a shame because I had to try to drum up support from everyone. Uh, and I was up against Honey Badger, which has got 44 million views, and I've got about 800,000, so it was always going to be a little bit of an uphill struggle to uh, claim the audience vote title. But it was just incredible to be nominated. And also, because I was already in Boston, I'd already planned to go to Boston for the Geek Week uh, festival thing. Uh, it coincided that that's when the awards were, so I got to go to the awards, uh, which I wouldn't have done uh, had I not already been in America. It was just brilliant, perfect timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Improv Boston Geek Week, opening doors left and right. And it was it was great to see you perform there. It, it saw, Rich is also, uh, to listeners, a stand-up comic of some aplomb, and uh, it was really cool to see him perform. And uh, part of that same festival, Overthinking It Live, did our wonderful uh, November Bane song, so it was a good time. Brought a lot of people together. So so do they, like, so let me ask you this. So did they do the, the nominee cam on you? Like, did you have to do the nominee cam while you, like, waited for them to announce who won? And, and how do you approach that? No, no, we didn't have anything like that. Well, what's weird as well was, because uh, it was the audience vote, that wasn't, like, I went on the Saturday, uh, end of April, to watch the awards at uh, Hammerstein Ballroom, which was a really, like, great, like, black tie affair, very swanky, very nice. Uh, but then it was going to be shown a week later, and when it was shown a week later, that's when they were going to announce it, like, on the website. So you could still vote. So I was at the awards, even though my award wasn't going to get announced that night, I was still at the awards area, which was a bit strange. Oh, that is weird. Because then when I talked to people afterwards, no one really knew <laughs> who I was because I hadn't been like, announced at the awards ceremony. Right. I think, everyone probably, I think some people thought I was probably making it up that I was a nominee. But <laughs> did you um? Did, so did you walk the red carpet? I mean, was it was there all this kind of Hollywood uh, stuff that that happened? Even though I guess the awards were in in New York, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. No, I had I had red red uh, red carpet access pass. Uh, so I got to walk along the red carpet while lots of lots of photographers went. Ah, who's that? <laughs> Move <laughs> Who along. Who did you wear, Rich? Who did you wear? I had to wear a, I had to wear a tuxedo. Oh. <laughs> so I was in America, essentially backpacking around America with a tuxedo in my bag right. the whole time I was there. Of course. Every yeah, time yeah. I kicked on someone's set, he had to take it out and hang out so he wouldn't get creased. Right. <laughs> Yeah, the other the other transients just thought you were British. Like that's how <laughs> yeah, British yeah. people travel when they're in America. Isn't this what we all do? We're hanging out at the Greyhound for a bus. Yeah, I'm not a farmer. I would be tempted in a situation like that to do something, uh, you know, to to turn the red carpet. Um, uh, you know, kind of absurdity into an opportunity for for performance. You you being uh, you know gracious uh, and you know a fundamentally decent person, unlike me, I suppose. Uh, you must uh, you know you must have resisted you resisted the urge. But did you think? I mean, of of you know pranks that you could pull uh, on the red carpet on Comedy Central's air. Well, it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that the reason I suppose. I didn't really think of any pranks because I was mainly concerned about where I was going and how to get in and get some free booze. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. But also, it wasn't live, so if I'd have done anything crazy, they probably would have uh, edited it out. 
Uh-huh. Unless it was so, unless it was, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen crazy and they decided right. to keep it in. But you'd have to go, you'd have to be pretty extreme prank to be kept in, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I run hot and cold on the uh, on the what he did on the the Oscars red carpet. I you know on the one hand I thought it was a really funny bit. Uh, on the other hand, I, I, on the other hand I don't know. I mean, not that I'm you know a great defender of the 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 dignity of the Oscars, but it was kind of all it was sort of all out of place. It was like oh we're waiting for him, waiting for him to do something zany. He's going to mm-hmm. do something zany. I think it almost would have been a better bit if he had just attended the show in costume mm-hmm. and had just. Just had not done anything. Had just been there, a presence, you know, uh, hovering in the background in his ridiculous wig and whatnot. Um, you know, as the camera panned over the uh, panned over the audience, you see this. Uh, you know, you see this ridiculous white white getup. You know, zaniness is not particularly zany when it's you know when it's expected when it's sort of yeah. irregular. Yeah. I mean, my take on the Baron Cohen thing because that's where he what he spilled the ashes of Kim Jong Il on Ryan Seacrest. No, right? yeah. Yeah, so notionally, yes, the notional ashes. Is it a, the notional Ryan Seacrest? Is that what we're talking about? Um, but no, so, so the thing, I mean, as a comedian, uh, the thing that strikes me is that that joke seems one level too complicated, right? It's like, it's like he's got the ashes, he's, so he's, he's on the red carpet, and he's going to subvert the red carpet. Now, is he playing, he was playing the dictator character while he was doing it? Yes. Right, so he's on the red carpet as his dictator character rather than as himself. That's one joke. The second joke is that he's going to humiliate Ryan Seacrest by getting his clothes dirty on the day when having your clothes clean is like the most important day of your career. Right, which is like the second joke. And the third joke is that he's going to be like kind of mocking and debasing the recent death of one of the world's most infamous leaders. Right, which is like a third joke. And I guess that's supposed to be tied to the fact that he's a dictator, but it doesn't feel like an intuitive thing and and i guess the way i want to bring this back and and maybe toss this to to rich a little bit is like what do you guys think about like the simplicity level of jokes like how how simple or complicated should you make like an individual performance piece especially if you only have a couple minutes to get the point across because one of the great things about tom Selleck's mustache is the joke is like really really simple but there's a bunch of different little ways in which it's explored like sort of little touches that explore it through the video but the actual core is just like super duper simple which seems really important for these viral viral videos that the kids are doing these days yeah, no, it, it will also, um, I think one of the things that's really worked well for it was that it's only about a minute long, which right. is unfortunate that everything, if anything's more than about two minutes, people go, I haven't got time to watch that, which is ridiculous, but unfortunately true. Uh, also, um, there's no dialogue, there's no dialogue in it. So anyone from all over the country, anyone all over the world can theoretically watch it and enjoy it, because even if they have uh, those films. And they're all dubbed with, like, the, you know, actors for their own country, which a lot of people are. You know, a lot of people don't know what Sean Connery really sounds like in France because these films are always dubbed with someone else doing the voice. So they can still see. Then no, no one's really excluded because everyone knows what these people look like. Right. And it works that kind of way. So it's kind of like that simple thing. But uh, it's really weird because you kind of just thought, it was one of those things where I just thought, I know that would be funny. And I couldn't really explain why I knew it would be funny. And it was just like a lot of editing later. I go, oh, it is funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when you do comedy, there's times when you go, I've got an idea for a bit, I think it'll be funny. With that, you just kind of went, I know that'll be funny. And I can't really explain why. It sounds arrogant. You just went, that's definitely going to be funny. Sure. And you, you almost don't want to uh, overthink it. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. Well, no, there's lots of stuff that's really complicated. You kind of, you know. The, you know, simple comedy is, is funny. There's lots of jokes, you know, even like one-liners or, you know, there's lots of jokes which are just basically set up punchline, but they manage to do wordplay and things like that. So you can be, uh, I do like a bit of storytelling. I like people to go, I like a bit of verbosity and people meandering all over the place, but at the same time I do really like a good one-liner. So it's all, I suppose it depends on the, on the situation, really. Right. Um, and the, I mean, and in the case of Tom Selleck's mustache, it's it's very simple. The 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 concept is very simple, but it's uh, kind of what Pete was intimating is that it's very sophisticated in terms of the way it's the way it's explored. Because Tom Selleck's mustache is such a um, it's such a, a what an emblem of masculinity, you know, that uh, putting it on some of the people that that you put it on and kind of importing a, what a discourse of masculinity into uh, like. Um, Onto uh, uh, what was it, Labyrinth? Right, like um, that's that's very that's very interesting, right? Tom, Tom Selleck plus uh, plus um, it was David it, Bowie, wasn't it? Yes, 
Right. Yeah, because David Bowie is deliberately androgynous, and Tom Selleck's mustache is like so masculine, but also of a non-sort of currency. There's not currency to it, and and this just I think this shows a lot of the relationship between criticism and artistic creation, right? Because the artistic creation happens from a more intuitive, basic place, right? Where it's like I know this is going to be funny. I don't really know why. I'm going to put it out there and follow my impulse, and then the critics can come along and be like, "Oh yeah, like you were involved in like a cyclical dialectic between like the sort of ideas of masculinity and androgyny." in the 80s and now they've evolved over the course of the last 30 years like i can really see i can chart the course of this historically and of course like this is absurd if this you're the person who's making it except that it's nice to feel congratulated at the kind of like the depth like oh my unchartable depths like i'm such a complicated person that i'm able to do these things uh, <laughs> yeah. well, i remember there was an interview i think with howard hawks and someone said to Howard Hawks, like, oh, you know, you're brilliant at film and you, know, you direct incredible stuff how do you like you know how do you do it like basically give us all this Give us like a ten-minute load of spiel about like how awesome you are and like the artistry. And he just said, uh, "I set the camera up, I look through it. If I like it, I film it. If I don't, I change it." Right. <laughs> Basically, his answer to how he films everything. Yeah, right. I mean, of course, and in that kind of in that moment of art, you have to you have to go on instinct in that sort of moment of artistic cre- creation because the things that are everything ends up looking like a Wes Anderson movie, right? If you you know if if sort of every moment is is your precious child, but the. Um yeah, but the, the I mean, and there's a right function of of criticism and kind of academia, and a wrong function of it also, right? And like, I think the wrong function is when it seeks to to supplant, um, you know, the power of. Uh uh, the, the power of the comedy or of the like the drama or of the you know the work of art that you that you love the sort of iconic moment right that that is awesome um, when it when when the uh, sort of academic um, impulse is to like obliterate that and replace it with you know something by Michel Foucault uh, hey Pete hit me with the Foucault. Michel Foucault. <laughs> the, uh, you know, I, I, you're in the realm of you're in the realm of something that is that is pretentious, and I I, I always have a uh, I always, thanks. <laughs> I always have the um, I always have a problem with things being called pretentious, uh, especially myself, because uh, I'm not pretending. I actually am this pedantic, you know, and. <laughs> <laughs> and right when something is pretentious, it's pretending something. It's pretending to be something that it's not. Pretending to be smarter than it is. Pretending to be more profound than it is. Or you know, in the case of this, these uh, sort of criticism that tries to seek to sort of supplant um, the awesomeness of Tom Selleck's mustache with a PhD thesis on you know discourses of masculinity in uh, you know the the late nineteen in the Reagan era West, right? Like. Uh, uh, <laughs> Supplant something awesome with something a little, uh, I, you know, I don't know, is something a little, a little uh, lackluster. Um, so I, you've you've touched on something, Rich, that we've talked about a little bit on the show, which is that like the power of uh, in films of sort of the the rise of of images and uh, or of the the importance of the story working visually without uh, without everybody understanding the dialogue, and I think that this is something that's coming. Uh, or Pete has identified this as something that's coming to the fore because of the importance of the like the international box office, the non-English speaking box office. You see in the like the huge uh, many hundreds of millions of dollars Hollywood blockbusters, um, you see that that they really you could turn the sound off, you know, and uh, it, it actually might improve on the film because the barrage of seat shaking. Uh, you know, special effects would be uh, obviated somehow, and the the um, uh, but the, you don't you don't need the dialogue. It's all uh, it's all kind of mime. It's all sort of commedia or a, a sort of dumb show, uh, and and it's important for it to work like that because the film has to play in oh I don't know in China or in you know places where it, uh, all over the world where English is not spoken. I single out China because it's the like the biggest emerging film market in the world, and I think one of your successes with Tom Selleck mustache is that it it totally does i mean you've taken it's not you know uh it's not like an eddie izzard routine or something like that you've taken like iconic images and put them together in a way that's uh, that's hilarious right mm. well that was the idea. also you know as you say like film is uh, supposed to be a visual medium isn't it ultimately obviously you have dialogue as well but you should know what's happening with uh, just with images, you know, you don't have to make a film like The Artist to have a silent feature film. You right. should be able to have a non-dialogue. You know, you don't ne- you don't necessarily need dialogue. You know, 
And even like when people like, and but I always said this one where people don't like, you know, people would always have this this reticence to watch foreign films because they don't want to read subtitles and stuff like that. And I used to just get, well, obviously that, that infuriates me because sure. uh, that's ridiculous. But I was always, I always used to show, I used to show him Run Lola Run it was always a good um, like gateway movie to foreign films because it's so kinetic and there's hardly any dialogue. Right. Most people just forget that it's a foreign film and can, they realise how easy it is to actually read and watch a film at the same time. It's uh yeah I mean it's an it's an interesting thing because I, I I of course like I love snappy dialogue and like speaking of uh uh who Howard Hawks I mean I you know I love like uh his girl Friday as much as you know some of the more um some of the more actiony uh some of the more actiony ones but you know I think you're you're right I mean I think that you know that sort of deep uh dialogue that's sort of what Stopardian um you know profundity is is maybe for the stage or or you know is maybe one of the aspects of theater that gets imported into film but that is not the like the the primary value of mm. of movies of telling stories visually right yeah but also then you just get terrible exposition as well which I don't mind but uh you know you just sit there and you go this is this is all and I just recently watched uh, Safe the Jason State from Safe which I actually really enjoyed because I'm a big Jason Statham fan. But there's a massive bit in the middle where Chris Saarinen basically just has a five-minute chat where he basically gives all the exposition as to who Jason Statham is and why, like, because you have no idea who he is or what he's doing anything, really. Right. And so so they wait till halfway through the movie and they're like, this is great, now I know who he is. <laughs> the, the, um, it would be better if he told it, does he tell it to Jason Statham himself? No, he tells it to the other guy who doesn't know, like, to the other. Which basically, it's one of those things where you go, hey, you know what we did three years ago. If you hadn't been for that thing we did three years ago, this never would have happened, that thing three years ago. You know, it's that kind of... Uh... But not in that sort of... Because when you watch, like, Glenn Gary and Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin's bit is essentially pure... It's just all exposition. Right. But because it's an awesome speech, you don't really mind it. He's just basically going, this is the point of the film. Sure. This is basically, you've got to sell things or you're going to get fired. That's the movie. You go. Yeah, right. he's. I mean, and he has a he has a sort of legitimate dramatic reason to be there, which is to sort of establish the to really establish the stakes and sort of drive them home for people. But when my, I mean, my favorite kind of movie exposition is when characters remind one another of things well known to them both, uh, which I am saying to you now on a Skype call uh, as we record a podcast for the website www.overthinkingit.com. <laughs> But Matt, we met in college, and we we met Rich at the Geek Week Festival at Improv Boston. Like right. with this kind of yeah, like the fact that we're recording this Skype call right now at a different t- etc. I wonder what other movies would benefit from just like taking all the exposition out of the beginning and just like throwing it into a big speech in the middle. <laughs> like what happens if if Star Wars just like stops like an hour in, and then they just like scroll the and feed. then the crawl, and then <laughs> yeah. the crawl happens. There's a freeze frame in the middle, and it's like it is a time of. Going Galactic <laughs> Civil War. Uh, I, my- well, I had that though. I watched because um, one of the two, one of the kind of films I really like is uh, I, I really like Crank. I think Crank's genuinely an amazing film. Yes. Oh uh, yeah. yeah Jason Statham. But it's it's great because it's basically it starts. You don't need twenty five minutes at the beginning setting the scene. He just starts. He's poisoned. Off he goes. So that's like you know that's what you want. You don't need. Let's see him being a hitman. Let's do this. You know, it just it, it cuts out all the stuff you don't need. Right. Which some people would criticise it for not being like a full enough movie, but it basically realised you don't need all of this stuff in it. We'll just get rid of all of that and just start when you need it. And that's why it really is entertaining. And also I saw, when you see like Fast Furious 5, uh-huh. which I hadn't seen all the... I've seen the first one and that one. I haven't seen all the ones in between. So when they have all the people turn up who are like going to do the job with them, who apparently are in all the other films because chronologically Fast Furious 5 is like number three chronologically or something like that. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of prequels and like time skips and like yeah, yeah Phantasmagoria and alternate reality. No, I don't know. <laughs> when it, when everyone turns up, everyone who's seen those films knows who all those people are, whereas I didn't. Uh, so they were all new characters to me. Sure. But because the film knew that everyone watching this film technically knew who they were, well, they didn't have a massive introduction to all of them. Uh-huh. And I was like, that's brilliant. So I just, they go, we need a, we need a, we need a, you know, we need a, a weapons expert. And then this bloke turns up, you go, all right, I'm prepared to assume he's the weapons expert. I don't need a 10 minute, you know, introduction to him. I'll just, I could just take it. I'll just basically, t- I'll take it on merit that he, he's I, the weapons yes. expert. I, you know, I, I don't need a load of nonsense. I just, just, you know, get on with it. 
Exactly, exactly. When I was a child, my parents were blown up by mishandling C4, and that's when I knew I wanted to grow up and be a weapons expert. You know, you know what I mean? Like, the, the, the backstory isn't important. You don't have to fill in the whole... Uh, in, in, a slightly more, in a slightly more serious vein, I think Peter Jackson did this pretty well with the, uh, with the Lord of the Rings um, films, because he, he, you know each film in the, the trilogy, there wasn't like a, a, a little voice going previously on Lord of the Rings. You know, at the yeah. beginning of each installment, he just kind of uh, he threw you in and i think the expectation the safe expectation was that you had seen the uh was that you had seen the other ones but it was nice to feel that that slight piece of um that slight piece of respect uh by the way have you heard from peter jackson uh from your hobbit audition uh, audition tape <laughs> no sadly sadly no word from peter jackson uh, I did actually did genuinely send it to him. Uh, what's with you, you read the YouTube comments. There's lots of people. Most people think it's like it's deadly serious. Uh-huh. Uh, people are going, "Oh, good luck with it." And everyone else is like, really? "You'll never get a job on Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Hobbit." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It's a joke." <laughs> So that's, I mean, that's kind of how you know that, that, that's how you know that you have succeeded sort of as a comic, because you know you weren't winking at all. You know what I yeah. mean? Right. Uh, if you, um, if, if people actually mistake you for being serious. Mm. I do that. I have, a, I have a poetry character thing I do in the, over here, uh, like a hip hop poet. Uh, and I can't do it at poetry nights because no one knows it's a, it's a joke because there's always far worse people not doing it than I. <laughs> so I have to do it at a comedy night, and then people go, "Oh, I get, I get it now." But it's like you know, I can't do this poetry character at poetry nights because no matter how bad I make it, there's always far worse poets. Of course, is yeah. is hip hop poetry really big in in uh, in the UK? Not really. I mean, it's, it, what it is is because there's lots of um, it's it's not really. I suppose to say hip hop is just it's um, like slam. Who's like? It's not about like white kids thinking they're black. It's more about um, like posh people who think they're like edgy and working class. Right. Sure. Uh, not necessarily hipsters, but that kind of like you know, they understand the meter of poetry, but they haven't got anything actually to say. But everything they say, they think is really profound because they've said it. Right. Uh, right. You know, sort of class war. You know, I, I remember it's, you know the famous thing is that everything's like a rhyme. It's like the uh, it's all that sort of alienation of my alienation sort uh-huh. of. If like that's as if that's like the best thing anyone's ever said, um, and everything like I tell you, this is absolutely. There's all those places like yeah. So I'm a poet, yeah. And what happens is yeah, this thing comes up and it's all like well good, and they talk like that because but that's not how they would talk normally. They're just putting that on because they want to seem working class and uh, and like you know relevant. Sure, and that's. I mean, it's funny because in in uh, in the states, there's often like a racial dynamic overlaid overlaid on that, and it's kind of like, well, you're trying to talk black or something like that, right? Yeah, well, that's what it probably would have been if I'd have come up with the character like longer ago. But then it would have just been like an Ali G thing, right. you know, like, rather than. Uh, but this is yeah, it's more just the fact that like I quite like poetry when it's done well. But I can't take there's something about poetry that's so earnest that I can't take it. Re- I can't really enjoy it or take it seriously. I can't respect it because it's too earnest, and that sounds stupid. But uh, anything that's re- any like bands or anything, if it's really earnest, I just like I can't. I can't take it seriously. Uh-huh. So you're not a big Richard Marx fan, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, I I remember quite, being quite fond uh, back in the day, but uh, <laughs> not not to any great degree. What happened? Did you, did you lose a love that that just made you so cynical and grizzled that you couldn't appreciate earnest earnest uh, professions of lyric anymore? Is this well, something that happened to you in life? I've got like, like you know I, I'm 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 all smiles because inside I'm crying. <laughs> We're all sad clowns on the overthinking. Yeah, life, life has been life has been cruel. <laughs> uh, just hold on to the nights, hold on to the memories. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Oh man. So so do we think so 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 I guess if we're if we're not if we want to do simple things that don't have a certain amount of earnestness but have a certain appreciation for form. Well, I feel like we're sort of sort of like walking through a prescription for like how to go about making short videos for Pro the Pro tip. Pro tip. <laughs> Make sure that you don't express yourself too earnestly. Uh have a layer of irony between what you're doing and what you want to accomplish. Um I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of. I'm a little bit fascinated by this form, right? By this. Speaking of forms, this sort of like form of the short 
online video. I, I hate calling it the viral video because viral is the dis- is sort of like something you aspire to in terms of the distribution of the thing, right? Like right. you put it out there and you hope yeah, that other you, people you are going to. You shouldn't it. call it a viral video. You should call it a video and hope it's viral. Yeah, like you don't make a movie and call it like – I mean what would it – I mean you're in the movie business, Matt. What would you – if you wanted to name a movie – I'm in the movie yeah, I mean, business by a, by a very tenuous uh, – <laughs> Well, small, you know the lingo better than I do. You were in Hook. I'm going to keep bringing that up every time you say you're not in the movie business. You were in Hook. You were uncredited in Hook as one of the singing children. As one of the singing uh, children. And I – yes, and I, I very uh, – every quarter I get a check for 37 cents for my uh, – for my. It's an honor to meet you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so what do you what what are the terms that you would use to describe the distribution? Like, if you had two different films that had two different kinds of contracts that were both like signed by either studios or, or video or movie distribution companies or theaters, like, are there different categories of like feature films that that would use different distribution methods? Sure, I mean, like, a sort of theatrical distribution versus like VOD, uh, like video on demand on on cable boxes or like online or or something like this like saying that this is my sort of this is my theatrical motion picture right is yeah. a little is a little premature because you know you don't know if you're going to get released in theaters when you are actually making a movie right right same thing with viral videos you don't know whether it's going to go viral and it seems to me the name has always felt to me a little bit presumptive well and it's right? also it's one of these i mean it's one of these sort of marketing things that like Oh, I think of it like the word electronica, which makes me want to punch people in the face. You know, like uh, it, it was created by a by a PR department somewhere, or it, or it was like created as a um, as an you know as a sort of well meaning way to describe uh, a phenomenon that was happening that we didn't have a vocabulary for yet. And then and then it got picked up by the marketing people, and it's like, oh, this is our viral video. You know, this, this is our thing. Yeah. I mean, no, Electronica is actually named after Beatrice Electronica, who was a prominent techno artist. <laughs> right. Who yeah. was one of the original people in, um, you know, in, uh, oh, God, isn't that terrible when you start the joke and you don't have the, you don't have the name? German, German techno band, you know. Crossword. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> you could, yeah, you probably, yeah. I oh, that's so all. sad. <laughs> Oh man, but yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's it's what. So, what would you call it? Like, if you wanted to come up with a name for what these kinds of videos are, that doesn't re- appeal to the aspiration of how you hope that they will sometime be distributed. Like, they seem to have a form of their own. Like, there seems to be like a, a sort of genre filling out around them, or a series of subgenres. Right. The, and, like, and the one that the one that Riches belongs to is like the the um the genre of like the supercut, right? Yeah, mashup and supercut, don't they? They call it. Yeah. Well, yeah. right. Yeah. Sure. And the the well, I guess yours is a mashup and a supercut as well, right? Oh, it's, it just gets better, doesn't it? The way you describe <laughs> it. There's, if people act, look seriously, guys, if you haven't paused this and gone onto YouTube and looked up Tom Sage's moustache, pause it right now and go on YouTube, you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, you've also done a lot of one of the other major, right? Uh, like subgenres of self-made online videos, uh, which is even not even a better. It's not even a good name for it at all. Which is you sweeted a lot, right? Like, yeah. But yeah, I was yeah. doing that before it was called Sweden. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know because I don't know. Because I used to do this show where I did a thing. My stand-up was all when I started. Like my stand-up was all about how I used to run a video shop that only rented VHS and wouldn't do it, and I hated DVDs. Right. I did like three Edinburgh shows. I did three hour-long Edinburgh festival shows about videotapes. Wow. And I used to recreate footage and like f- trailers and do sketches and stuff. And then uh, I was like, that was my thing. And then about sort of like two years into doing that, this bloke, I remember being someone going, oh, you know, do that stuff with the videos. Oh, you're going to be so happy. Michelle Gondry's doing a thing about Go Works in the Video Shop with film parodies. And I was like, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. I was like, that's like the worst news in the world. Right. Like, not like you know, like that's like give us a give me a chance to get famous with this before like Michelle Gondry and Jack Black make a movie of it, you know. But uh, thankfully, it wasn't that well received, so everyone I can still carry on and pretend to be you know you know do my thing with everyone going. We're just doing be kind rewind, which yeah. is great. So you don't yeah. call yours you don't call your sweeting there like uh, the perfect the perfect. <laughs> well, it's perfect movie. The show I do is perfect movie, uh-huh. which is a stand up comedy show all about films which are doing London, right. Uh, and it's basically everyone who turns up has to do material about films. Uh, and it's usually stuff they've written for the night because people like, most comedians like to talk about um, films, but 
because they have to earn money on the live circuit, they generally can't talk about films. I'm one of the few comics that sort of talks about films in their set because that's when you start doing stand up, they say, just talk about what you know. And I knew about films, so I, so I sort of really sort of mis, misinterpreted that in advice and took it really to heart, like took it very literally and just talked about movies. Uh, but yeah, then at the end, a special guest, they come along and they choose their favourite scenes from films, beginning, middle, and an end. And uh, we recreate them and film it with them, but like in my house for like no money. Uh-huh. So it's quite good, you know. But it's like, you know, it's one of those things, there's a lot of effort uh, goes into it because I'm not saying it's like a cheating or trying to make it look tacky, but it's that weird thing where you sort of find yourself spending like four and a half like days uh-huh. to make it look like it took you 20 minutes. Right. Because if you actually just took 20 minutes, it'd be rubbish. So it's very weird, sort of like keeping the vibe like fun and like you know enjoyable. Sure, I mean, there, right? There's an aesthetic. Uh, there's an aesthetic. There's a DIY aesthetic that is actually mm. it's it's sort of like realism, right? Like no, you know, realism isn't real. You know what I mean? And things that look cheap aren't aren't necessarily cheaper. Things that look easy and slapdash are not are, are sometimes very carefully carefully constructed mm. to look uh, to look easy and slapdash. In fact, this podcast took us about eighteen hours to record. Yeah, yeah I, I don't, I'm exhausted. Right. <laughs> I had to take my, my break off from my live performance in German of both parts of Goethe's Faust in order to record this podcast. <laughs> but it's still gonna, it's going to be just wrapping up when I get back, so I get to do the big uh, car chase at the end, which I'm really excited for. At the, yeah, at the end of, at the end of Faust. When we can say this because no, one, no one's read all the way to the end of the second part of, of Faust, or the first part. Or I, sure I, haven't. I, I hope it involves Jason Statham like, you know, giving himself defibrillation with... Uh, two live, you know, electrical wires. He speaks oh. a great deal about the nature of reality and then covers himself in grease and has a fight in a bus station. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And as he takes his shirt off so the women have got something to look at and the men have got something to aspire to and right. punch you in the face while being gruff, that's, that's pretty much what anyone really wants, isn't it? Yeah. Are you psyched for Expendables too, Rich? I sort of am because I didn't really think Expendables 1 was very good. Mm. Uh, like, it was all right. But it just seemed like, I don't know, there seems to be lots of films, like you watch The Avengers, there seems to be lots of films where the film, they sort of, you know, like there's too many characters and they've got to give everyone something to do and it sort of spoils the film a bit because, like, Jet Li had nothing to do with The Expendables. Jason Statham basically goes, I'm not coming with you, sort this, <laughs> sort this mess out yourself, for no reason other than it gives Jet Li something to do so you can then get in the trouble with Dolph Lundgren. You know, like there's no, this whole film, you know, it's not written very well. I know it's an action movie, but, you know, some action movies are written very well. And I felt, so I think Spendables 2 could be good, but I hope they just kind of go, it was like a Genesis, it felt like a Genesis movie that didn't explain who anyone was or what they were doing. That's the thing about Expendables for me. But hopefully it'll be good, the second one, I don't know. Yeah, I... Oh, go ahead. Uh, the, well, yeah, I mean, I was thinking of like the, the sort of inflation, right, of uh, of like Oceans 11, 12, and 13, and The Expendables is, you know, I don't know, Oceans 25 or something, something like that. And the, the second one, they've, they've actually added people to yeah. it. I mean, there are more, there are more the, there's like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is back in an expanded role. Uh, Steven Seagal was in it, I think, right? Like, uh, as, as the bad guy or something like that. Jean-Claude Van Damme is the bad guy, I think. Oh, Jean-Claude Van Damme is the bad Yeah, right, yeah. of course. Chuck Norris is in it. Right. Um, uh, it weirdly doesn't look, doesn't really, doesn't, hasn't seemed to age since about 1982. Yep. It just looks the same. It just, yeah. I don't know. No, that's when he made his, uh, actually Chuck Norris's Faustian deal with Mephistopheles to, uh, yeah. you know, have eternal youth um, in return for, I don't know, what was the downside? Uh, well, Texas will never have independence. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's this whole alternate reality in which, like, Chuck Norris is a hobbling, like, sh- like shriveled shell of a man and Texas is a thriving <laughs> independent country. Yeah, <laughs> Chuck Norris stays the same age, but in his loft, there's a massive picture of America crumbling. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the Last Temptation of Norris would be a, a wonderful <laughs> movie to make. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, but, yeah, like, yeah. Just, yeah. I like, I actually, I really like The Last Temptation of Christ. I think it's a very good film. I particularly like the bit where uh, William Throw like, throws all the money limbers out the temple, which is a really great scene. Just, this is brilliant. <laughs> Watching William Dafoe as Jesus, like, properly take care of business is brilliant. <laughs> Oh man! Oh, also that- adding. Okay, so now I'm looking at that. Now I'm looking at the cast list. Also adding Liam Hemsworth. Um, nice. 
Who is Liam Hemsworth? Uh, he's oh he's uh, he's the brother of Chris Hemsworth who plays Thor. Oh, the the lesser Thor, like the son of Thor, Thor Minor, is or whatever it is, like the younger brother of Thor. Fair enough, fair enough. Awesome. As I guess is the the what the young the young person, and he also is in Hunger Games as Gale, the you know the brooding love interest from home. Oh wow, interesting, interesting. That's who, cool. Who they uh, you know cut back to at several points during Jennifer Lawrence's exploits uh, to watch him brood. Mm. And and sort of pout. I was that good. Hunger Games. I didn't see it. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can listen to the whole. Uh, you can listen to the whole um, podcast, or you can read Pete Fenzel's uh, you know Hunger Games extended universe uh, novel called Docking Jay, set in the uh, the trucking and logistics industry of awesome. Um, of, <laughs> <laughs> it's weird because I saw the film and it didn't really excite me. And everyone told me about it. It just—it's weird because obviously this is this is nothing wrong with this, but uh, I'd quite like to read the books, but I've no interest in watching the film. Does uh-huh. that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Even when people talk about Twilight, part of me goes, I'd probably give those books a go, but uh, not the. You know, I saw one film and it was you know underwhelming. Sure. Well, uh, the it is, and and having having read all the books, uh, it's. They they too are underwhelming. I mean, I I don't know. They have virtues, but they are not literary virtues. Yeah. If you are a lover of of you know poetry uh, or of literature at all, um, even in the most <laughs> non pretentious way imaginable, you probably um, uh, you probably would be able to live with yourself. <laughs> I mean, well, one of the things that this the difference brings up. I think, and I guess this is particularly key for people who feel really personally invested in in movies as a form, like it's something that they love, right? Is like the biggest difference between the Hunger Games, the books, and the Hunger Games, the movies, is similar to the difference between the Lord of the Rings books, Lord of the Rings movies, the Twilight books, the Twilight movies, which is just like the perspective of the of the book and the perspective of the movie are, are different because the movie kind of necessarily by its form externalizes the interpretation of what's going on, right? Like like people talk about the Hunger Games being a ripoff of Battle Royale, for example, and it's not because the primary thing about The Hunger Games, the books, is that it's told from the perspective of Katniss, the girl. Right. Right, which is not true of the Battle Royale at all. Like, yes, there's a girl who's a protagonist, but it really doesn't give you a particularly rich sense of her emotional life and her interpretation of events as they happen. Right? Like, she's definitely like an object that's being looked at from the outside over the course of that movie, just as she is by her middle school teacher. Of a battle royale character, but uh, in the Hunger Games, you sort of see her come to terms with, as an unreliable narrator to a degree, like what's going on and what she thinks about what's going on, uh, and and part of the fantasy of it is people putting themselves into her situation, and then the big twist of the books is right the author kind of like indicting that fantasy as well as the world around it, right? So, uh, and this was something that people I know some people complained to me about about the Lord of the Rings ones was that there was enough Hobbit in them. Right, like it's all like El- it's all Gandalf and Aragorn and and Rohan and horses and and majesty and woods and mountains and castles. Where really the books are about like the hobbits and sort of the hobbits eye view of every situation. Um, and, and I guess that sort of raises this question. Maybe maybe what it raises is this sort of. I mean, in finance, we'd say it's a barbell view, right? Like, you sort of leave out the middle and you go to the extremes. Like, the very, very big, very, very externalized look at a world, like stuff like the Avengers, like stuff like the Expendables, where, like, everything is huge and you're seeing it from this, like, mondo macro vantage point. And then on the other side, you have these, these videos that are very, very small, that are very personal, that are very simple, that are, that are kind of more experienced directly by the individual, I suppose. And then there's this sort of part in the middle where, you know, Ben Affleck makes arts films that people generally don't watch. I don't know. I guess they watch them, but uh, yeah. he's got another one. Well, I think I that know. what's interesting because I, I quite I'm not a big fan of the Lord of the Rings uh, mm-hmm. books, and I like the films as well. But I think that was interesting. The thought about the the, like the Hobbit thing was that mm-hmm. whenever I've spoken to people who didn't like the films but hadn't read the books, that was what they they kind of said. They kind of basically said that without knowing that that's what they meant. The sort of sense of there wasn't any. Sort of, there wasn't like an actual personal story to get behind, and it just because it's kind of very sort of removed. You know, it's very third person the film, isn't it? That they sort of said, well, there's bits that sort of didn't make, didn't seem as important or as key, and they weren't as invested. You know what I mean? That's what that's what they said. I mean, I, I sort of was all right, but I don't know if that's just because I read the books and I sort of was was behind the films. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, 
You know, Aragorn in particular is a much more sentimental figure in the books, I think, than he is in the movie. Viggo Mortensen is kind of gruff and distant, right? And then like, but the books they bind up all this expectation that the that's in the in the perspectives of the people who are not telling the story, but kind of experiencing it more immediately. Uh, and it just seems I don't know. I, I definitely think that there's a sort of softer side of it that's missing. The the movies do have a certain amount of edge. I mean, I love them. I love the movies too. But I can definitely see how people would be a little bit alienated because they are a little bit alienated. And I think that's part of their formality as well. Like the, the epicness is kind of somewhat alienating at times. Um, which yeah, is also yeah. why I love the Ten Commandments, the movie, so much because it's like so profoundly alienated that it sort of like comes around the other side sometimes and is just really kind of like endearing and silly. It's like so like they try to tell the story that is just so far away from all of their experiences that it's like this lunge and performance, um, and, and then there's like all these moments where this vulnerability of trying to do this sneaks through that I really enjoy. But uh, but that's just me. I don't know if anybody else. This is like re- watching Resident Evil. I don't know if anybody else actually likes watching that stuff. Likes watching. <laughs> The Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I got a couple of positive responses from that article that came out with right after Easter. But um, uh, it's 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 a grand film. You can make that in, into like a very short viral movie. I think you'd it'd lose a lot of the charm. <laughs> well, have you seen the uh, the Decalogue project, Chris? John? No, what's that? Lowski's Decalogue project. It's basically ten films, each one based on one of the commandments. Oh, so it's serious. Where short film about killing comes from? That's the Thou Shalt Not Kill one. Oh, okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. But they—they are—they're serious. They're not comedies. No, no, they're not. They are—they uh, are as bleak as most Polish cinema. <laughs> 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 they're good, but they're not—they're not comedies. There is a, you know, sort of gallows humor in some of them. But uh, yeah, yeah. There's no I like, do like yeah. miserable sort of Eastern European cinema. <laughs> I'll bring uh, I'll bring it up because we mentioned it before, but like the contrast that sort of sense of a- epicness with like some of the conversations between Willem Dafoe and Harvey Keitel in the Last Temptation of Christ, where you get the sense I mean, where you get the sense that sort of the, for the particular scene, they're just two guys, you know, just sort of shooting the shit, right? That like there are these there are these conversations that are not reaching at this, uh, and not reaching for this kind of performance of. Of of epicness that you're you're talking about in you know the Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston and whatnot, right? Yeah, well, it's good. Well, what's good? The thing about people, I don't know. I mean, I don't really understand the controversy. I mean, I'm not, I don't understand. I mean, like as a, I don't get it. But uh, it's I watch Last Station of Christ. I don't really see what what anyone could really complain about, like in terms of all the problem in the UK. Everyone was up in arms about it as a film, but because it's about Jesus as a man, you know what right. I mean, like that's a key element of him being like the human being part, isn't it? Like he just, so it's not, he's not walking around all grand and verbose. He's cause he's just, it's like him when he's the carpenter, isn't it? That's basically, so he's not going to be all, you know, as he's remembered in the Bible. You know, sure. I really like the bit where it's like, like the realism of it. It was great. The bit where, um, they, uh, they, when he turns the water into wine at the party, and he just basically goes, they go, we're going to throw the party's over, there's no wine. And he goes, oh, no, there's wine. And they go, there is. He goes, yeah, yeah check, check, there's wine. And then there's basically, that's it. There's no sort of, you know, uh, sort of miracle. He just basically goes, <laughs> no, there's wine. And that's it. You yeah. know, and it's like really sort of low key. And it's like really much more, I just thought that was great. Mm-hmm. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that you saw the movie and that's why you thought that you didn't understand the controversy. <laughs> <laughs> that, always that, that always gets to me. When people don't see the movie, like the people are like picketing outside of the of dogma, right? The Kevin Smith movie coming out, you know, and it's like these are not people who would watch any Kevin Smith movie, right? Like if they if they actually watched Kevin Smith movies, they would have a lot more problems with the number thirty seven than they do with like the fact that there are angels in the latest one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. Can you be angry with an angel if it's paid by Alan Rickman? Surely that's the best thing in the world. Exactly. It's like the most. It's the kind. It was like the kindest film to that kind of belief system that had come out in years, and people were up in arms about it because they didn't bother to sit down and watch it and try to figure out what it was about. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Because um, it's you know fine movie. Chris Rock. He's hilarious. 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 <laughs> he um. <laughs> Uh, and then he gets paid one million dollars. Uh, 
so I so I was thinking maybe a, a closing thought. I was thinking about uh, unless someone else has a whole new avenue they'd like to pursue. I was thinking about viral videos or these sort of online distribution. These very personal, like another genre of viral uh, viral video is just the person standing in front of the camera talking to those. And Rich has done a number of them that are fun, including the the uh, Hobbit audition um, one, where the person is just sort of you know straight to camera sitting in their room, or you know better yet, kind of like leaning over their webcam in their laptop and sort of talking to it. And, and people do these um, very authentically um, as kind of like a video journal or like a vlog or something like this. But th- then like uh, performers will like create characters uh, and, you know, and, uh, and do these. So there's this origin, I mean, and there's... Um, uh, for this kind of video, there's this kind of uh, romantic myth of like the single point of origin. Like this is straight from my heart, right? I'm just standing in front of the the camera and um, you know pouring out my heart. And then they're also consumed by people at this uh, uh, you know in this kind of solitary way, like at my computer or on my phone or something, you know, something like that. So that there's this, even though like the idea of the internet is that you know you can get millions and millions of of views for your video, you can have this sort of global distribution distribution platform where the masses can see it the the way they see it is different from the uh from the model of theatrical exhibition where like a a large group of people sit in a room together or even the model of like television exhibition where you know at least originally even if you were all in your own houses you were all watching it at the you know at the same time and you could hear the laughs up and down the street right like for i love lucy or something like that um it's this it's this almost this very lonely i mean you know this kind of like uh maybe even almost a little sad uh, form of mass tr- distribution, but that is that is for that uh, more intimate because it is so one to one, right? Because it's so personal, uh, at least notionally personal on the the creating end, and personal on the um, on the receiving end, right? Am I crazy? No, that's like you're right. Also, it's um, if you're someone like me uh, who's you know not really famous but does stuff. And is known, sort of known within the sort of industry, but not, you know, not, you know, first, not the first name on anyone's list for anything yet. You know, it's nice because you spend like, it's very hard to get things commissioned. Say you want to do a sketch show or something. Uh, whereas, you know, you can just go, oh, I'm fed up with this, I'm just going to do it. Like a podcast is almost like, I'm pretty sure, you know, half of the people who sort of initiated pop podcasts did it because they were fed up with not being able to get on the radio and just thought, oh, I'll just do it. I'll just do it myself. You know, everyone, actually, a lot of um, the internet has basically afforded everyone the luxury to go, oh, I'm fed up, I'm just going to do it myself, which is good if you can, you know, but it's just, you know, got to make, if you can make money from it, it will uh, be a, a ridiculously awkward time for people in TV and movies because there's lots of people who will be out of a job because most people's job is just to sort of be the mid, like the stopgap between talent and money. And if talent can go straight to the money, then there's going to be loads of people who are going to have no no jobs. Uh-huh. So then everyone's going to be lonely, and everyone's going to be at home just washing their computers. Right, except for <laughs> except for the people who are like Louis C.K. Louis C.K. Like, um, did I say Louis C.K.? Jesus, Louis. His name is Louis C.K. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the. Uh, uh, you know, raking in a million dollars for uh, you know for putting a five dollar download on the internet. That uh, God willing, that will be all of us one day, right? But that's what I would do if I could. You know, I'm just not in a position where that would be. You know, that wouldn't be. There would be no point to me doing that. But that's the sort of thing you go. If I was in his position, I would do that because it seems ludicrous to try to negotiate with loads of people to get. Because all you do is really. You know, he's he can record it, put it straight on there, and get all the money. Right. If he did it, he'd have to like get a DVD, sell the DVDs, have to sign with an agency. You know, they'd take a massive. He'd get like hardly anything. You know, it's ridiculous. Well, right. Like, at that down the line, every person you know who touches it shaves a little bit off of your profit, and you can do it. You know, you can do it yourself. I mean, he he posted. Do you remember when he posted that screenshot of his own PayPal account with a yeah. million dollars? In it? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, come on, you know. But you know, he he's a gent, and so he he. Uh, I did good stuff with his uh, with his money. I, you know, in addition to to paying himself, he paid the people who work for him, and you know, and so on. Yeah, yeah, but that's yeah, that that, that that's that's sort of uh, you know, that's that's right, isn't it? But especially if you're doing if you're a stand up, because you probably 
you know, it's not always the case, but you probably wrote the whole thing yourself. So it's probably, it's basically it's all you, other than the person who helped you book the room and filmed it. So right. why shouldn't you take all the money from it? Yeah. Um, why, yeah, which shouldn't, God, uh, God willing, that should be uh, that. Um, so before we wrap, uh, Rich, how do people find you? Where do, they, where do they follow you? And is there anything coming up soon that, uh, that our listeners in uh, the UK or anywhere around the world can uh, come see you do? Well, obviously, uh, I'm on. I'm on the. I'm on the Twitter, uh, <laughs> Squat Betty, Squat underscore Betty. Uh, you can probably type in Richard Sandling. You find me. I'm on Facebook as well. Feel free to add me. Uh, both Perfect Movie and The Carvery, which is a sort of weekly roundup of news that I do, I both have pages on Facebook which you can like if you don't want to add me as a friend. Uh, if you go onto YouTube, I'm my username is Buckham Thirty Nine. As in uh, John Buck and Thirty Nine Steps, uh, and I'm at richardsandling.com. And just basically, I'm Richard Richard Sandling. Doesn't seem like a weird name, but I'm the only Richard Sandling for about the first fourteen pages of Google. So if you type in Richard Sandling, you can find me. You can find. And if you are interested, perfect movie, June thirteenth at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. So uh, come to that. Oh, fantastic! Oh. And there's a schedule. There'll be a schedule online for that sort of stuff, also. Yes, yes. You can book tickets through the Leicester Square box office. Excellent. That should be a very good one. Uh, and uh, you can email us at podcast at overthinking.com or call or text uh, 203-285-6401 uh, for your listener feedback. Join the uh, conversation in the comments on the show notes uh, for this episode. And we'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably... Doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. We all say that at the same time at the end. We should have let you know before the recording. <laughs>uh, you know the movie that I would like all the exposition cut out the beginning and the uh, and put in the middle is The Rock. Right? <laughs> Because the first act of that movie is like 40 minutes long. You know, it takes like, it takes more than half an hour to get on the damn island. And so I would like to start on the island and, uh, you know, somewhere 20, 25 minutes in for Sean Connery to stop everyone and say, gentlemen, you are on the rock.